the rest of you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 29. Pardon me while I get organized here this morning. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes to them in the middle of a context that really uh, has a lot to do with speech and particularly has to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, as we move into chapter 5, he talks about that. And uh, Pastor Green has shared with us in the last three weeks uh, some of the uh, meaning of the various fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, those individual fruits that are born on the same tree that are mentioned uh, in Galatians chapter 5 and uh, talks about the uh, attitudes that are reflected in the lives of those who are governed by the Spirit of God. And I appreciate uh, his messages And I will not ever forget the apple tree illustration, will you? (laughs) I really uh, appreciated that, and uh, I was talking about it with uh, my son Jonathan, and he said that is probably the clearest illustration he's ever heard of trying to live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. Apple trees just produce apples. I can't say it the way he did, but (laughs) they just do that naturally. And believers who are filled with the Spirit of God just naturally exude His aroma, His character. And so in these uh, verses in Ephesians 4, the last half, and in Ephesians 5, um, the Apostle Paul speaks to us about the tongue being under the control of the Holy Spirit. And James tells us that the tongue, our mouth, is an unruly member. That uh, it is a little member, it's not very big, but like a small Flame can set on fire an entire forest. A careless uh, cigarette thrown down or a campfire not thoroughly extinguished. And pretty soon you have a wildfire out of control. And James says the tongue is like that. Uh, Oftentimes we don't think about the impact of our words. I remember attending uh, a course in counseling uh, many years ago, and uh, the speaker at that course, it happened to be uh, Dr. Larry Crabb, but um, in uh, addressing us, 
he, he talked about um, the old children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. He said, there's nothing further from the truth. Your bones will heal, but words can cause wounds that last a lifetime. And it's so terribly important to bring the tongue under control. And yet James tells us that no one can control the tongue. It's an unruly member. It, it kind of runs off on its own. And of course, when we talk about the tongue, yes, we are speaking of that uh, organ of phonation that is in our mouths, but it alone is not responsible for what comes out of it. It is governed by our mind and by our heart and by our spirit. The things that we think that are unwholesome and inappropriate that come uh, flooding out of our mouths are the things that cause the problems and the difficulties and the pain. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, in like fashion in Ephesians, wants us to pay attention and focus on our speech and bring it under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because He is the only one that can control the tongue. When James says no one can control the tongue, you know, the natural question is, well, how can God hold us responsible then? Well, and the reason He can is because He has provided His Holy Spirit to empower us to speak according to what the Holy Spirit gives us to say. And so our tongues can be controlled even if they cannot be controlled by our natural man or natural person. They can be controlled by the Spirit of God. And so, beginning in verse 29, as Paul writes, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And I ask the question, what is an unwholesome word? What is an unwholesome word? If you were to look this up uh, in a Greek thesaurus, as I did, and I've copied uh, directly for you here, that the Greek word sapros means uh, decayed, rotting, rotten, literally of decaying fish or fruit no longer useful for food. How many of you... Uh, grew up near uh, the beach or the seashore uh, or a, a harbor. Can I see your hands? Oh, not too many of you. I guess you're in the Midwest, aren't you? Well, uh, Lake Michigan will suffice, I suppose. But uh, I grew up in Tampa, and Tampa Bay was the foulest smelling body of water 
I have ever experienced in my life. Not only because they dumped the sewage in Tampa Bay, but because uh, many times uh, fish and crabs and other kinds of sea life would wash up on the beach and, and die there, or they were dead when they landed there, and then in the sun they would begin to rot. And the stench was horrible. Uh, there were times when you literally couldn't go because it smelled so bad. And um, I remember uh, that stench that came from those rotting fish and from those bodies of water. And they were horrible. And that's literally the background of this word, sapros, unwholesome. It means it's decaying, it's rotting, it's putrid. It's bringing a foul odor and a foul smell uh, to our nostrils. Um, figuratively speaking, it refers to unedifying speech or harmful speech, uh, unprofitable. Have you ever thought about your speech as having a foul smell? <laughs> of, of, and what happens if you eat something like that? Do you know the kind of case of gastroenteritis you would end up with? <laughs> If you ate some rotten flesh like that and what that would do to your body, oh my goodness, uh, the sickness that it can cause. And Paul is saying that our speech can cause that kind of sickness to the soul, uh, uh, to the spirit, to the heart, to the mind. That it's not a sickness of the body so much, although... If you study somewhat in depth the impact that stressors have on the body, it eventually affects the body. But um, the speech that is unwholesome is speech that gives a sickness to the soul. It may be discouragement. It may be uh, heartbreak. It, it may be abusive speech or inappropriate language. It could be speech that is um, uh, simply crude and rude, uh, unwholesome speech. Uh, we can certainly think of as being foul language or cursing. Uh, there's no need for that in the life of a believer. And but besides that, you know, you kind of get, um, shall I say, numb to uh, foul language. Um, certainly in our culture today, we have lost the concept of ladies and gentlemen. And uh, you can go to a restaurant with your family and someone at the table sitting adjacent is using all kinds of foul language and coarse humor and they don't even stop to think about the fact that there are children around them or small families. In fact, uh, my grandchildren are growing up in an environment where they're using foul language. 
And we're constantly uh, having to bring correction when they're in our home because their speech is inappropriate. And I can't believe what's coming out of the mouths of five-year-olds, you know. It's just like, oh my goodness, (laughs) where did that come from? Well, I know where it came from, but it's something that they're rather constantly exposed to. But that's not the, the, the depth of the problem. The speech that really causes hurt and grief is the speech that is aimed at another person's character. The speech that's aimed at their uh, behaviors and their appearances and uh, the kind of speech that demeans and drags down another person. Uh, sarcasm that is biting and hurtful in its uh, intent that is designed to bring that caustic, putrid effect into the life of another person. And I have suggested here that active listening and thoughtful speech is speech which is mediated by the Holy Spirit. You know, when we have conversations, have you ever monitored yourself? How many of you have had a class in active listening? Maybe job-related, maybe a school. Wow. Okay. We're, we're going to have an introductory class this morning in active listening. Because most of the time when we have conversations, we have a tendency to be thinking about what we're going to say next. You've had one of those classes, I can tell. You're you're right on track with me. (laughs) But we have a tendency to think about what we're going to say next. And what happens when you think about what you're going to say? You don't hear what the other person is saying. Um, It is essential in active listening to listen first to the complete thought, the whole sentence or the whole paragraph, to, to hear what the other person is trying to communicate and to pay attention to that without an agenda, without a retort, without thinking, how am I going to argue this point? How am I going to prove I'm right and they're wrong? Listen all the way through. And then let the Holy Spirit guide the response and how you respond to that kind of conversation we are intended to be instruments of righteousness sharing godly insight you know wholesome speech is speech that rather than being rotten and putrid is fresh and it's produces a source of vitamins and enrichment and what we need for sustenance and for growth. And if you're going to be the kind of person who is speaking in the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
you've got to be thinking, uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to govern how you respond. And you know, people may make you angry. Actually, they don't make you angry. They say things and you get angry. You've got to own that responsibility. But they say things and you get angry with them. And you want to get even. Rather than trying to understand why do they feel that way? Why are they saying what they're saying? What's going on in their life to make them behave and speak that way? You know, oftentimes people in crisis say things that they really don't mean. But they're hurting. And in their pain, words come out of their mouth that they really don't mean. Leave me alone. Get out of here. I don't want to see you. I hear that occasionally in responding to a crisis of health in the emergency room or something and someone has sustained a loss and they're angry with God and they're angry with the circumstances and maybe a loved one has died and they're angry that God didn't intervene and God didn't stop that and and all of that is going on and, and you know I don't think Jesus would approach a situation like that and say, now you shouldn't talk like that. The only thing you can do is step back and love them and be there. Let God sort out the problem. But to be available and to be willing to uh, be a source that they can lean on without judgment. That's wholesome. That's wholesome. Our words should never cause harm or despair or insult. We must allow the Holy Spirit to monitor and govern what we say. And then Paul goes on to say, But let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Edification is intended to build up. It's intended to strengthen the structure, to make something sound and stable. What can I say to this person that will build them up, that will give them encouragement, that will help them to stand strong and, and be supported uh, by the word of the Lord that's spoken through me, our words should always be aimed at building up and encouraging one another. Do we think about that? Do we think about that in our marriage? Do we think about that with our children? Do we think about that among our friendships? Do we think about that in church among those we're not so friendly with? Is our aim always to edify and encourage and build up? 
what words will do that? How can we come alongside people and encourage them and bless them? Excuse me. That was a spider. And he's not blessed. <laughs> wow, that was a that was a strange experience. Furthermore, yes, I don't often see black things crawling up my shirt. At the... Where did it come from? That's the real question. <laughs> what we say and how we say it is dependent on the context of the moment. You notice what he says? Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. What, what does the scripture say? Laugh and rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There is a time, if you read um, Ecclesiastes, there's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for sadness. There's a time to grieve and a time to be happy. And we need to be sensitive one to the other in terms of their mood and their circumstances. That the words we have to say will be good for the need of the moment. How do you think Job's counselors handled that situation? Job, we know you've done something wrong. You wouldn't be in this mess if you hadn't done something wrong. So we're going to sit here with you till we figure out how you failed God. Wouldn't that bless your heart? Just make you feel warm and supported inside. You know, the interesting thing is it could be true. It wasn't particularly true of Job, but it could be true. A person could be reaping what they've sown. You know, and uh, I, I often hear, well, you, you, need to, you need to talk to them about that. They, they've caused their own problem. You know what? They know they caused their problem. <laughs> they don't need me to tell them they caused their problem. What they need me to do is to come alongside and share the love of God who forgives and cleanses and restores. They don't need to be told, you blew it. I, I have seldom met the person that really blew it and didn't know it. They may not want to admit it. They may want to hide it. But the fact is, they almost always know it. And they don't need me to reinforce it. Aren't you glad that every time you go to pray, God doesn't give you a recitation of your sin? Aren't you glad that He says He hides your sin behind His back, that He chooses to remember it no more? That means never to bring it up in your present. God doesn't forget, He just chooses not to bring it up. 
Aren't you glad that He separates our sin from us as far as the East is from the West? And you know, I've said it many times. If you say North from South, you can, that's a distance. You can go from the North Pole to the South Pole and mark it off in miles. But if you head west, you will never go east. And and vice versa. Because God removes our sins infinitely beyond us. He is so gracious in that way. And so, only such a word as is good for the need of the moment for edification so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. To speak inappropriately, we need to recognize this. It grieves the Spirit of God. It causes Him pain. And He is God's presence within us. And it disrupts our fellowship. Not our relationship. I want to point out to you that this whole passage is written to believers. Notice that he says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's talking to Christians who were sealed for the day of redemption. He's speaking to us who know Him. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers grieve the Spirit by resisting the Gospel message. But believers grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning in His very presence as He lives within us. And He is wounded by that. And that disrupts our fellowship with God. And you may find that you have a hard time relating to God. You may find that you don't feel that uh, that warmth toward the Lord, that you don't sense His presence. Could it be that you have grieved the Spirit of God in some way by, among other things, the things that you have said? Our speech is to give grace to those who hear. The Holy Spirit of God wants to be through us, to use us as a conduit for His love and for His mercy. And then Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I'm going to come back to the bitterness and etc. in a moment. But notice that Paul wraps up this paragraph by saying, Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, it would be a good exercise for us on a fairly regular basis to take stock of how God has loved and forgiven us. To review His mercy and kindness toward us. To meditate upon His loving kindness. If you read the Psalms, that's one of David's favorite words. Your loving kindness, O Lord. And it's become one of my favorite phrases. God's loving kindness. It isn't simply agape love, although it is that. But it is kindness with it. Loving kindness is a, is a gentle, gracious, encouraging kind of love that soothes and blesses us in rich and amazing ways. God wants us to experience His loving kindness and to reflect on the fact that He has forgiven us in Christ. How can we hold a grudge or animosity toward a brother or sister in Christ when God has forgiven us so much? How can we do that when God has loved us with an everlasting love? And come to us in loving kindness. How can we hold those grudges? How can we want to get even? How can we say spiteful, angry things? How can we tear people down with our words? When God desires nothing more than to build us up and to encourage us. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. I've got just a moment, and I, and I want to share uh, something. Uh, those of you that have been around a while, you've heard me say this, but notice that he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. Ryan read for us a passage that began in uh, verse 26 uh, of Ephesians, and he read it from the New International Version. And the New International Version, the first edition was written in the late 90s, the last one was revised in 2011. And Sometimes it's interesting how modern thinking influences the translation of Scripture. It isn't just a theological perception. It's oftentimes a modern um, kind of uh, worldview that influences us. And in the last 30 or 40 years, psychologists have... Christian psychologists have touted for us the importance of it's okay to get angry 
Just be sure you get it straightened out and make up by bedtime. Do you know that's not what the scripture says up above when it says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. How does that square with verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you? If it's okay to get angry, as long as you get it worked out by bedtime. And if we apply just a little bit of logic, we can also realize sometimes there are hurts and wounds that give rise to anger that can't be fixed in a day. It takes several days. Think about a marriage where unfaithfulness has occurred. You think that's going to get fixed in the next eight hours? I don't think so. Um, I don't care how you feel about it. It's going to take months and months and months assuming there is repentance and confession and contrition and restoration desired, it's still going to take a while. So just add some logic here. How could this verse possibly mean, don't let the sun go down in your anger, and interpret that to say, make up by bedtime? The fact of the matter is, all of these phrases are commandments. And the scripture literally says, be angry. Be angry. Stop sinning. Stop letting the sun go down on your wrath. And stop giving the devil a place in your life. That's what it literally says. Well, if we're supposed to be angry, what is the only legitimate focus of our anger? ungodliness that coincides with God's anger. And boy, we have a number of excuses to make up for righteous indignation. But it's literally talking about an anger toward sin. If you read the entire context in which these unwholesome words occur, the scripture is saying to us, have in you an attitude of anger toward that which opposes God. Be angry. Stop sinning. Let that anger that is toward God's uh, desire and, and against His unrighteous and against unrighteousness let that anger govern your behavior. Stop sinning. Stop letting the sun cool down in the daytime. Keep your anger at the white hot zenith of the noonday sun. Don't ever let it cool off. And stop giving the devil a place in your life. The, the Greek word literally for opportunity is topos. 
It's used three times in the New Testament, and it always means, well, the other two times, it means a geographical location. It's literally saying to us, don't give the devil a place to set up shop in your life. Don't spend time dwelling on your hurts. Don't spend time thinking of ways to get even. Don't spend time thinking of how to respond in kind that will uh, accomplish that sharp spear that pierces the other person's heart. Don't focus on that. Don't give the devil a place. Hate sin. And be angry towards sin. Not toward people but toward behaviors and attitudes and ungodly ways that are against Him. That, along with our Lord Jesus Christ, should make us angry. Jesus exhibited this when He drove the money changers out of the temple. I don't think that was a very pretty sight. And the interesting thing is, They didn't delay in moving. (laughs) They were in haste to get gone. Because he was angry over what they had done to his father's house. That's the kind of anger you should never let cool down. Keep your focus on Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would encourage us this week to allow your Holy Spirit to govern our speech. Teach us the benefit of active listening. Show us how to be forgiving even as you have forgiven us. And bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.